Today I welcome Matthew Stewart, Head of School at Cadvon School in the USA. In this episode, the pillars of our Montessori education are shared. We unpick the need for social-emotional learning, not soft skills, and preparing kids for a future of work in 2037. I want to talk about Cadmon School, because this is the first Montessori school in New York City. Does the Montessori approach still serve its purpose effectively today? Absolutely. I, I mean, it's interesting, you know, and her historical perspective is kind of interesting because she, you know, she came here in the, I think, the 20s. And John Dewey, and actually their philosophies are similar, but John Dewey's people like ran her out of town. And so she didn't do well. And then in the late 50s, there was a whole new approach in America called the American Montessori Society. And there still runs on two tracks. There's the American Montessori Society and the AMI, Association of Montessori International. So we were the first AMS school in New York City, which is an interesting distinction because of the, I almost feel like AMS is like Reform Judaism and AMI is Orthodox Judaism. I mean, it's a little freer. We're not really, I mean, we do some, you know, twists and turns with Montessori, but the bottom line is that the essence of her thinking which is that a child is at the charge of their learning and a teacher's job is to merely incite the child, invite the child, get their curiosity going, then step out of the way and let the child, you know, play, work, structure, put things together, feel, smell, touch, not do things correctly, do things correctly, practice, master. It's phenomenal because the bottom line is that, I don't know about you, I, I went to school at a time when you watched the teacher carefully and then you did what the teacher told you or showed you to do, and you were assessed on how well you copied the teacher. And of course, that leaves you with no skills once you're being asked to do something with your life and figure out what you want to do and figure out how to do it. You're waiting for someone to show you. And so Montessori does a service purpose effectively, even more so now than ever, because our children, of course, have no idea what their lives are going to be like. So I think it's an incredible philosophy that's really, really great. And tell me about the growth of Montessori schools, because you're obviously the first Montessori school in New York City. Have you seen a growth of Montessori education or, dare I say, Montessori spin-off education, not just in New York City, but across the USA? Or is this something that is quite static or is it even declining? No, no, I think it's growing immensely. A couple of things, though. I mean, first, when I started the school 10 years ago, you know, you'd bring in a group of people who are applying and two or three knew of Montessori. Now, any person who applies is coming, typically coming because they know Montessori and want Montessori. So I think Montessori is much more known among families. I think there's a huge increase in Montessori schools. The other thing that's interesting is that you don't pass any, you know, uh, laws or rules to write Montessori on your school. You just can put a shingle up and say you're a Montessori school. So there's also some delightful and highly qualified Montessori schools, and there's some not so good ones. You know, so that's the other problem or the other challenge is that you make sure how are you able to describe and explain the experience at your school to make sure that people know it's going to be a bona fide Montessori experience for the child. And is this something that we should be promoting more heavily in schools across America as an approach in the early years of a child's education? Or is it really just for the few that feel it's right for their child and we should embrace all different types of education? Certainly seems to me that the children I see at Cadman and in other 
you know, early childhood programs that are Montessori, they do achieve a sense of success and skills that seem really, really apt for now. But on the same hand, I think the human brain is a very interesting thing. One, I, I always say I'd be a fool to, you know, put down other schools because they're very quality schools. But I also think it's foolish to ever say, well, this is the way to approach education. Children are wildly different. I mean, one of the things I love about Montessori is that she was very clear, like, you're not teaching three-year-olds. You're not teaching a philosophy education to three-year-olds. Her philosophy is, who's in my classroom this year? What makes them thrive? How does this child listen? How does this child get excited? You know, this teacher, wonderful, wonderful Montessori teacher at Cadman, she talked about this three-year-old who declared she's just, she hated math and she was terrible at math at <laughs> three. But the teacher knew she loved little, beautiful things. And there's a lot of Montessori works in math that are these beautiful glass beads. So the teacher just put right at that little child's level on the shelves, all these beautiful glass bead math works. And soon they were spending weeks doing all this intricate, intricate math work, skip counting, you know, multiplying. And then the teacher said, you know, you've been doing math. This is what we've been doing. Oh, oh. The point is, is that the one thing I do think that's powerful about Montessori is Montessori is really aimed at knowing each child very carefully. So you are able to create a classroom and use various, many, many beautiful materials to entice a child's learning. So I do think Montessori is a great education for kids. I would be hard pressed, though, to say, you know, you should only send your kid to one kind of school. That just seems silly. It's exactly right. And I think, you know, as long as the kids are given the right environment to be nurtured, to be curious, to be creative, it shouldn't be about mimicking a teacher. The skills that every, every child needs now to prepare them to get through, you know, middle school, high school and out to college is enormously difficult now and different because of technology and expectations, what the future of world looks like. So do you feel that of the model of nurture that Montessori has is better to prepare them for that next step of education? Because you teach up to what, 10 years old, but, you know, to 10, you know, and then they go off. You know, do you feel that they are prepared to take on this future world with what they have in their toolkit? Absolutely. So Cadman is a very unique niche in New York City where we, there's only three schools, independent schools that go through fifth grade. I mean, all the public schools end at fifth grade and then you go on to a different middle school. Many private schools are K through eight or pre-K through 12. Or, so we're a unique niche. And I watch our children. And the thing is, the reason I think that the Montessori serves them so well, two reasons. It teaches a child that you can make a mistake, you can take a risk. And it absolutely doesn't matter. And that the teacher is your ally and you go to the teacher when you have a question. So, you know, what I have seen, and I worked in middle schools and high schools for years, what really trips up that kind of child, especially the smartest one, is they're so afraid of making a mistake. They're so afraid of, especially they're really smart, they're so afraid of doing something wrong and, and risking losing their A or risking losing their, you know, kind of reputation as being always right. And that's disastrous for a child. You know, a child has to be where, oh, cool. You know, Montessori's expression when something doesn't go right. Oh, cool. Teacher, two plus two is five. Really cool. Show me how that is. And typically a child in showing you will correct themselves. No, wait, wait. No, no. Two plus two is four. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, that is right. Two plus two is four. So instead of shame or repetition, 
You're really learning through discovery and through self-discovery. And that is exactly what a child needs. Moving to middle school, you hardly remember a bit of content. I mean, if I ask you, you know, and I don't know about England, but in America, if I ask you in seventh grade, what did you learn? You learned if Susie was the popular one and Jimmy was the king of the boys and I tried to fit into this and that group, you know, you don't get back to content till about ninth or 10th grade, right? <laughs> and then you're taking on massive amounts of content. So unless your brain is really set for, how do I do this? What's the best way to do this? Should I talk to the teacher? Should I make a study group? Should I? You're not going to succeed. I know you have this coming up. I, you know, my favorite expression right now is that a current kindergartner graduates in 2037. The iPhone's been around for 10 years and look how it's completely, completely changed our world. So what's going to happen 18 years from now? So a child has to be ready to move, to change, to try different things. And that's why I love those early years of Montessori. They're so setting a child's ability to want to learn, to want to unpack, to get curious about something. And to know if it doesn't go well, that's okay. That was a good discovery. And you mentioned those middle years. I mean, it's, it is fascinating, the, obviously, the physiological, biological change that those young teens go through. I call them the, you know, they're, they're the tweenagers. They're in between, right? They're still enjoying being a child. We still call them a child. Yet they have aspirations and they're going through all the changes that turn them into something different. Again, just thinking just of the passion that you talk about the Montessori education. And I look at what, you know, we're, we're trying to put through education, which we want every child to remain curious, creative. The world needs problem solvers and critical thinkers. Surely we should be extending a Montessori-style education through their middle years, because that's such an important part of love and belonging. And actually, it's not about right or wrong. They just want to feel that they belong. Have you considered that? Is there a model that takes Montessori through to grade eight? Yeah, there is. I mean, there's some really wonderful schools in New York that are K through eight Montessori schools. You know, her, her work was more with little children. And then her followers did develop both elementary, middle school, high school work. When you look at it very carefully, it's really, in, in my opinion, just very good progressive child-centered education. It's education that's centered exactly what you're talking about, inspiring the child to be creative, to be a problem solver, to think to work with others, to be collaborative with others. You know, there's a, a wonderful school in New York, very successful school, was probably more traditional, has really opened up. And their application process now for sixth grade, rather than to do an interview or a test, is they put three sixth graders together and they give them a problem to solve and they watch how they solve the problem. And I think it's a spectacular admissions exercise. And they're taking careful notes on how this was even true during you know, COVID. They, they were online on Zoom. And one of our children got accepted into the school. And when I spoke to the admissions director, she said, you know, not only was he a great problem solver, he was so patient and kind in helping the other kids work through their Zoom problems. And I knew he'd be a great, you know, a great addition to our student body. He clearly smart, but he was, you know, out there helping the other kids try this, turn this. And so, you know, that's the point is do you have students that you're inspiring them an empathy to connect with others and to want to work with others and not want to compete, but to succeed and to see that the group succeeds and to see you and I've spoken other times. I love how curious you are. So that should be inspiring and fun. And we should want to 
be with others and learn from them. And hey, what do you? How do you think we should do this? You know, and when you raise children and you teach children to enter school with that frame of mind, the world's your oyster. I mean, you you can do anything if you raise children to compete, to you know, beat each other out, to keep from each other. Where does that get us? And we're moving into a world where we will be in touch with people across the globe. We'll be in touch with people like you and I. You're in London. I'm here. We're on a Zoom call. We no longer will only be, you know, doing our job in Dayton, Ohio. We'll be moving throughout the world. You know, so unless you're raising and educating children to be curious and ask and be a problem solver and take great joy in working with others on figuring something out, you're going to be limited to the training and the brains that you have in store. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. We talk about the social development of children because we often refer to the notion of soft skills. Why is this not a good name for this area of education? We know, first of all, very scientifically, that if my brain is worried about something, there's a lot of chemical flood of my brain preventing me from learning. So these are not soft skills. The bottom line is if a child feels safe, child feels like they're known, if they're, you know, I always say your job as a teacher is not only to make a child feel like they're known, your job as teachers to make that child feel like they're needed in your classroom. I am so lucky to have you in my classroom. What you add to this classroom, that is going to flood a child's brain with all kinds of wonderful chemicals that makes them awake, alive, ready to learn. It's a silly fallacy, this idea of hard skills, soft skills. A child can't read if their brain is not absolutely toned to read and they're not curious as to what they're reading and they're not thinking about how to read. If they're thinking about how bad they read or that they might get a B or a C or that they the other kid is smarter than they are. All of that stuff is taking away from their reading. Anything that, you know, developmentally, we know that children will learn best, will learn most richly if they feel that, you know, they're valued, they have a value, they're safe, they have a place in this classroom to engage. Montessori's learning is fascinating. We're with kids that were thrown to the side. They were the, they were the learning disabled. They were the, you know, they were the unteachables. She had such success with the unteachables that she was accused of cheating. But I think all that happened was that she gave them value and met them where they were, and they were able to learn. They weren't coming in with preconceived notions about how they should be learning or what they should be doing. You know, and then the other thing that's also very cool about a Montessori teacher, truly trained Montessori teacher, you are expected to know where the child came from. And what the child's been going through, you're expected to know developmentally. And also you talk to those teachers and you're expected to know what's expected for the child beyond you. As opposed to I teach sixth grade, this is my silo, this is my expertise. A Montessori teacher truly should know, well, what does an infant toddler teacher teach? What do infant toddlers go through? What do the three and four-year-olds go through to get to my kindergarten class before they ever have come to me? And then what do I have to know so they will do well in sixth grade? 
And if you think about that, for a teacher to have that kind of broad perspective, they're going to be a much richer teacher because they're also not coming with these preconceived notions about, you know, one of the biggest problems is when a person comes and they go, well, this is what a six-year-old should know. And this child doesn't know that. Or this one really knows more than six-year-olds. This is a great kid. That's just not true. This child is where they are. How cool that I get to teach them no matter where they are. It's a huge difference. And how do we quantify the social development of children? Or do we not need to measure progress in this area? Or is it just a feeling and you you measure it by a, a happy, contented child and their parents going, they feel happy and contented? Or, I mean, is there any measurement or, or not? We know so much now about brain science and about a child's ability to engage fully or not engage. You're really measuring that child's social emotional successes when you're assessing their abilities to engage deeply with something they're reading, to answer complicated math problems. If we would switch this idea of separating, how can you convince anyone, I'm going to measure a child's happiness. And that means we've done a good social emotional learning class. That's just just crazy. But you certainly can measure a child's self-awareness and what they're bringing to the room and their ability to assess their own ability to commit and where they are and the success they're having with the work. And then you're assessing their depth of thinking in a math class. That's assessing their social emotional learning as well, because if they're really deeply engaged, then you've succeeded in making them feel then they're happy. You know, Michael Sislinski's Flow, I don't know, you know, that book is a great book about, you know, the best psychological health is when you just keep, you get so engaged, you kind of forget what's going on. That's social emotional learning. So you're assessing math and reading and the hard skills by the person's depth of engagement. Yeah. And I'd be very interested to, as we kind of look towards the future, because when you do the math, you know, kindergartners today will graduate high school in 2037. You know, that just doesn't feel believable that ever will be in the 2030s, let alone the latter 2030s. And these young kindergartners will be out there going into this world that we're going to leave them. We've seen a huge amount of obviously technological change. We've obviously seen human changes, particularly the last two and a half years in the face of this global pandemic. But as you kind of look forward into your crystal ball, what should we be teaching these children and how might it change from what you're doing now to prepare them for a world that we cannot imagine? I would say, and you've used my catchphrase for kindergarten applicants, I think that we, what we should be teaching them is exactly the stuff I've been talking about. How well am I able to work with others? How flexible am I? How can I switch? How much humor do I bring? And how much humor do I find in this situation? How well do I work with others? How well do I engage in the unknown? How resilient am I when things don't work out? Now, you know, there's a body of research that says that our current children will have five different careers by the time they're 30. Not different, you know, not different jobs within their same career. There's someone who speculates five different careers. Would you have switched to five different careers? No, because I think also we had the wrong framework and direction and advice from parents, whether it was an old academic institutions that 
that really hadn't changed their philosophy or their way of teaching became academic and learning by rote. So no, I mean, and then we were told to save for to retirement, basically to start thinking about when you die. So we never told anybody when they come out, they're going, actually, these are all the things you can do, but you, know, you can do anything. Don't worry about the end because you don't wait for a piece of music to finish. You don't go, I wish this, I don't wish this song to end. You go, I just want to enjoy this music. So we've got to teach our kids, well, even when they're coming out of school, for me, when they graduate high school, they've got to come out and they've got to have the ability to go, do you know what, I just want to go and try lots of things, but do things you're passionate about that you enjoy doing. Because I think you'll then fall into something. I do believe that they'll have three to five different careers in their 20s, and they should do. And never to stick with one, because I don't know. I've, I've got so many friends who fell into their first jobs out of graduating. It wasn't by, by design, but then they ended up having careers of it and didn't enjoy it, but they got used to the money. Where do we sit with that? What you just offered was kind of uh, choosing or happenstance and, and finding. For me, the other piece that our kids are facing is that stuff will end. And for you and I, if, if a job was ended or was taken away or we lost a job or our division was taken away from company, that was associated with failure. You know, you had done something wrong. And the whole point is that, you know, we've got to prepare our kids for it. it's not failure. Uh, you may change your mind or your employer may change their mind. So that's the piece that I think is intrinsically different is the resilience to go so uh, I still have all these other skills. I still have all these other passions. What else can I do? I'm jealous, frankly, of the kids now who think that way because I did not have that gift. You know, I was told, shoot, and of course, I, I went in the theater, which was a horrible profession if you want to have surety and, and have everything set. <laughs> but the bottom line, though, is that you have to be at a place where you are ready to just, you know, weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. It's just something new, something different. Maybe I choose something different. Maybe it's chosen for me. So if their brains are really more about, oh, cool, well, what's this about? Let's unpack this and let's unpack this together. Then the world just crackles and, and moves forward. And how do you think we mitigate our own fears? When I talk about our own fears, I'm talking about adults and parents and even teachers, you know, about the unknown world our children are going to go into. But it's also to do with our own, I'm going to say our own ignorance to the world in which we live in too. So are we the best role models? And how do we mitigate these fears? Because we will project them onto our children because we ourselves don't understand them. So it's kind of like fend for yourself, you find your own way. We can do a whole other pod on parenting or if you want podcasts on parenting because I think it's so important. You know, and it's an important job, especially for a school that has young children in it. I think our job, I always say we have a very sacred triangle of a child, a parent, and the school. You know, by middle school, the kids are like, please don't come near school. Please stay in the corner and pretend you don't know me. But, you know, in elementary and preschool, they want their parents there. But we do have to have parents understand. And they, I think, you know, the younger the parents, the more they realize the pandemic. The gift of the pandemic was that it made the unknown a reality that I think we all pretended wasn't the case. You know, I think we all pretended up until the pandemic, well, I have control and a few poor, you know, people, well, they, you know, have an illness or they have, they lose a job, but that's a, you know, very rare. Typically I'm in control, life is normal, life is set. And the best thing about the pandemic, frankly, is it just blew that all apart. 
you know, and life was never, when people say, I want to go back to normal, I keep saying, what normal are you talking about? Because we're in a highly volatile world. We're in a completely changing world. What fondness are you remembering for some idea that you were under, in control? And certainly for your children, they don't have that. You know, so our job is to really admit to our children, it's okay. It's okay that the world is so chaotic. Because that's embracing that chaos is the key to success, is the key to, you know, going beyond surviving. I completely agree. Because it is chaotic and it's going to get more chaotic, you know, but we've got to deal with some courage, some resilience, you know, keep instilling the creativity, the curiosity, all these things that make a person thrive, let alone a child thrive. A child does it naturally. An adult does it, does it unnaturally because we're forced to prioritize other things that are adultly without us getting into what's childly and what's authentic as a human. And I think if we could do a lot more of that, I think our kids will be in a better position because they'll come out knowing I can take on the world. It's not about knowledge because I've got it in my pocket. I know how to act and how to be with people. I'm empathetic. It's lots of the things you talked about. So the kids at your school, I know, are getting a fantastic start in life, Matthew, and it's been an absolute real pleasure finally finding the time to sit down with you. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.